Good morning, all. Delighted to be with you guys. Thousands of years ago, a Hebrew widow by the name, uh, by the name of Naomi was making her way back to Bethlehem from Moab. Having sheltered there from famine, she and her two Moabite daughter-in-laws with her had also, who had also lost their husbands to early deaths. And in that society, they had little hope to look for elsewhere. The widow urged her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, to go back to their father's homes in Moab to have at least some hope of finding other husbands in a future life. But Ruth, seeing the depth of Naomi's suffering, refused to consider her own and literally clung to Naomi, the scripture says, binding herself to her with an oath, with words that reverberate with compassion through the centuries to today. And they are these. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. From where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. We're talking about growing in compassion today. And though that story does not use the word compassion, it exemplifies it. Compassion literally means to suffer together. It is the feeling that arises when you are confronted with someone else's suffering and feel motivated to do something about it. It is sympathetic consciousness, this is the Webster's, it's sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. In essence, compassion involves seeing, feeling, and seeking to relieve another's suffering. This is not our default disposition, is it? Let's be honest. Our natural tendency ever since the fall of man has been to move away and to withdraw from God and away from suffering, ours and others. We don't want to see suffering in ourselves or others, and we sure don't want to feel it. And what can we really do to relieve it? When Adam and Eve sinned, they immediately took off. They hid. Remember the story? They hid. As silly as that was, they didn't want to see. They didn't want to, they didn't want to deal with that. We are naturally and profoundly self-oriented. Profoundly. There's a, um, Luther and Augustine talked about sin being like curving in on oneself which is a powerful image and illustration. It's the opposite of compassion. A preoccupation with self, by definition, excludes any concept of compassion. But it is not God's default disposition. In contrast, God sees us, despite Adam and Eve hiding. And He felt, He feels for us. And in fact, He moves towards us. Remember, He came looking for them. Did He not know where they were? Of course not, but he's moving towards them, drawing near in compassion where we tend to withdraw. And ultimately, even in that moment, even in that earliest time, promising where they shifted blame, promising he will come to take it. Love is literally expansive. Such preoccupation with others is by definition central to the concept of compassion. 
The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, writes Dane Ortland, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. Jesus literally put on compassion, ultimately by becoming a man, Philippians 2 tells us. Christ is love covered in flesh. So with that, I want us to look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. We'll have the scripture here up, up on, the, on the screen. This is going to be the main scripture for today. And you guys will recognize it because we went through Colossians last year. But it's so good. And we need this in our growth series. Read with me the word of the Lord. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony put on then colossians 3 is full of these since thens and therefores you guys may remember that from our study then if the word then is there, it means refer to what has come before. So we're jumping in in the middle of, of chapter 3. If then, but in chapter 2 it says, if then you have been raised with Christ, made alive with him, you're entirely different. You're a new person, a new creation. So same thing here when it says put on then, it's referring to all that has come prior in the letter to the Colossian church and asking us to see the fullness of Jesus, the sufficiency of his work for us, and on this grounds, we are called to these actions, right? So then it says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is who we are in Christ, church family. Chosen by God. Holy, which means set apart. Distinct. Beloved. What could be said about us that is more profound? Don't skip those words. We're going to get to the compassion and the action and the things we need to do. But family, we are chosen, holy, beloved. And this is an identity that we work out in practice. We learned in Colossians. This is about being renewed in the image of the Creator day in, day out. It's part of what we do. The action is rooted in and empowered by who we are in Christ. It is who we are that drives what we do. It is who we are that drives what we do. Because we are holy, because we are beloved, by God himself, then we are called to what? Put on compassionate hearts. And so this is the center of the, of the, of the message today. This is a profoundly others-oriented disposition. Hearts that see, hearts that feel, hearts that seek to relieve, that lean into sin and suffering, that do not withdraw, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland captures a sweeping scope of Jesus and his compassion. Just listen to these examples. This is only a fraction of the times that Jesus is described as being compassionate. Traveling from town to town, he saw the crowds and had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Matthew 9. The compassion comes in waves over and over again in Christ's ministry, driving him to heal the sick, 
And he had compassion on them to heal their sick. Matthew 14, feed the hungry. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Matthew 15, teach the crowds. And he had compassion on them and began to teach them many things. Mark 6, and to wipe away the tears of the bereaved. And he had compassion on her. Another widow, thousands of years later, do not weep. Mark 7. The Greek word in all these areas for compassion is the same, and it refers literally to the bowels or the guts of a person. It's an ancient way of referring to what rises up from the innermost core. It's a disposition. This compassion reflects the deepest heart of Christ. Compassionate hearts. Then what does it say? Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. Guys, this is not just a list. Again, easy to miss. These words are further spelling out what characterizes compassionate hearts. What does a compassionate heart look like? It's profoundly costly. It is love with no exit strategy. Not dependent on a visible return. It is lonely. I wonder if Ruth was lonely when she was with Naomi. You know, we read that story, and I read it at the beginning, if you're familiar with it. Did you ever think that Ruth could do nothing to relieve Naomi's loss of her husband and her children? She could not resolve that. But would we say she's not being compassionate? Of course not. She literally is giving her life to bear with Naomi, to do something to alleviate her suffering. It was great cost to her. And Naomi is so hurting, later in chapter 1 of Ruth, you see, she doesn't even recognize it. She doesn't even recognize what Ruth is doing. And yet, that does not deter Ruth. So when we read these words, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, patience, patience and compassion, not looking for immediate response. It's in, compassionate hearts involve going where we would not naturally go. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Doing things we would not naturally do. I will forsake the hope of a husband and a future and bind myself to an old woman with no hope because I'm compassionate for her. We must go on. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Note that it does not say... And if anyone has a complaint against another, standing up for yourself and asserting your rights. Yeah. Yeah. No, it simply says forgiving. We cannot have compassionate hearts without forgiving. We can't be kind, we cannot be humble, we cannot be meek, and we cannot be patient. We certainly can't bear with one another if we don't forgive. Forgiveness involves seeing what is wrong, it most certainly involves feeling its impact and personally absorbing the cost. Much more can be said about forgiveness, but it is not an accident that it flows in this passage and it is describing what compassionate hearts look like. I just want us to see at this point how central it is to loving and being who we are in Christ because it points us back, the cost of it points us back to the giver. And then the verse ends, and above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Again, guys, these are not throwaway lines, a nice little summary. 
it is capturing the gist of this passage. The two greatest commandments, it's alluded to here, you, you hear that, 